Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we have Reverend Pamela Mella Borowski. She's an empathetic, intuitive psychic, a spiritual guide, energetic healer, and certified hypnotherapist who focuses on healing the mind, body, and spirit. In this episode, we're going to talk about empath, getting over your fear of death, and even talk about spiritual gifts. So not only is this a fun and interesting episode, but if you have any lingering fear of death, this is an absolute must. Enjoy. Welcome to the Kaka TV podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Mala, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm so glad to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and what it is that you do? Sure. I'm almost 50 years old and it took a really long time for me to figure out exactly what I wanted to do in the world. But in my 40s, I went back to school and I became an integrative healing arts practitioner and I got certified in hypnotherapy and also ordained as a minister. So my path has been very I think a path is usually very spirally. So you go up and then you go down a little bit, you go up again. And that's really what has happened to bring me to the point where I'm living with my family that I never thought that I would on this big piece of property, a farm, and just um, having, having a business and being so much more healthy in mind, body, and spirit than I ever used to be. So we're going to talk about empaths today. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what is an empath exactly? So an empath is a type of highly sensitive person. Sometimes you'll see it called an HSP, but it's a type of highly sensitive person that is extremely focused on emotions. So an empath is going to be someone that can walk into a room and if there's joy going on in the room, they are going to feel that joy as if it's their own emotion. If they walk into a room where someone is depressed or where there's anger, they're also going to feel that as well. And so an empath can really kind of tell if they are an empath, if they go somewhere and just for no reason, they're feeling these emotions that they don't think are theirs, but they're kind of absorbing them from the people and the world around them. So that sounds kind of like me, but how do we know that we're really an empath? Are there any other clues? Yeah. So I have put together quite a few things. So um, can you identify what people's emotions are pretty easily? So are you drawn to your friends who are just feeling a, you know, a certain way and you just know what that way is? Do people come to you all the time, just in, out of the blue, even strangers. Hey, can you help me find my lost dog? They may pull up and say, hey, what's a uh, direction? What time is it? So that energy draws people to you. And maybe a stranger sits beside you in the airport and starts telling you their life story, or your friends are drawn to just come to you as almost like the counselor. Animals are drawn to impasse. Music is so important to impasse. And I'm not saying this stuff doesn't happen to other people, but these are all kind of things, clues that you can put together. So animals will be drawn to you. You may have a healing effect on people. People may say, you're soothing to be around. I like being around you. I like your energy. 
Also, if just suddenly maybe you're not around people, but you are just so angry or you're just so you just start crying out of the blue because you don't have to be right next to somebody to feel the energy of even your community or even the world in some cases. So especially during this past year and a half or so, have you been feeling like the weight of the world is on you? Have been have you been feeling just these deep emotions that feel like oh my god, the whole world's emotions are just on me? Do you know immediately when someone is lying to you? Can you just tell someone is lying to you? Um, do you feel your own emotions so deeply that sometimes people have said you're too sensitive? That's also something. Um, also, empaths may be prone to addictions, and that's because they want to drown out the world. They're unprotected. So they're drowning out all these emotions by going to various addictions. If you watch the news, does that really affect you? Does that stay with you for hours or even days when you watch things that are violent, when you watch devastation? Do you have food sensitivities? Do you have digestive issues? So these are just a few of the things that that I have found through my research, and I'm an empath as well. So through my own life of being able to recognize, am I just sensitive or am I really an empath? Do you find that more introverts are empaths? From the people that I know, yes, it does seem like more introverts are empaths, but it's not all the case. It's not just introverts. I'm an introvert myself. I know many. And I, I think that regardless of whether you're an introvert or not, an empath is going to like to be alone because that's a healing time, that kind of quietness and out in nature. But I do think that introverts... Maybe even as a child, they become this introvert, maybe because that is a safe space for them. Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. People are very much draining. Their energy drains me. Mm. All of their problems overwhelm me so that I'd rather just not be around people. Right. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I don't, That sounds terrible. But if someone's in a great mood, I love hanging out with them because they make me in a great mood immediately. Yeah. That sounds like empath energy there. Yeah. And I was um, studying to be a psychologist. And then as soon as I got into it, I could not do it because it was just too overwhelming for me. And immediately I'm like, "Mm, this is not something I can sustain. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So what kind of struggles do empaths have? A lot of it has to do with what you were just saying. So if you have somebody that feels everything. And that is takes home all the, you know, like you were saying about psychology and even, even being a doctor and nurse, sometimes that is really difficult on an empath as well, because you're carrying home all the stories that the people around you have. And so that can be a struggle because if you are not protected, you can't even tell your emotions from other people. And so you may come home after seeing someone who was very depressed or being around someone who's just so angry with their family, and then you get in a fight at home, or you go home and you, you know, sit and, and binge on on ice cream and just cry your eyes out, you know, and you have no idea why. So that's kind of the, the difficult part of it. Also, if you think of an empath like a sponge, 
when you soak up all that energy, regardless if it's negative or positive, you're going to have effects inside of you. And so a lot of empaths struggle with mental, physical, and even spiritual and emotional problems because they have taken on this their entire lives. They've never been taught how to say no. They've never been taught how to set boundaries or do any sort of protection. And so you can just imagine, I like to say wait, because it, when a sponge gets full of water, it does feel heavier. And, and so that's going to affect every single part of your life, including relationships. So what are some key skills that you need to live as an empath? The number one key skill that I like to tell people about, and there are several, but the number one is you really need to learn about yourself deeply. You have got to separate yourself from everyone else and figure out who you are, what your own emotions are, what how you feel emotions. Because if you don't know yourself deeply, you're not going to be able to separate yourself from what's going on. And so journaling is really great for that. I would say don't be one of those people that journal for two days and say, I hate this. You have to do it for at least 30 or 40 days. So I'm not saying journal for the rest of your life. I know everyone doesn't like that. But commit to journaling for 30 or 40 days and write down what you're doing, how you're feeling, how you react when you're around a certain person, what happens when you watch a television show or the news. Just write it all out because then you'll be able to see patterns. I have clients come to me all the time and I will ask them the simplest questions about what they like, what makes them happy, what do they like to do to bring themselves peace, and they don't know. They have absolutely no clue about themselves because they've been so enmeshed in other people. And so they may say an answer and as we dig, they'll find out, oh, well, that's what my partner likes to do or that's what I did as a child because the family did it. So you really, really have to get to know yourself and you also have to get to know your aura. So people kind of, you know, the whole woo-woo aura thing of seeing the colors, it's way more than that. I mean, we are an energy being. Everything is energy of, of some sort. And so our aura is not just that colorful, pretty picture that we go get from the aura photographer. We can actually extend our aura up to five or six feet on either side of us. So imagine an empath who soaks up everything anyway and you are literally 12 feet wide. And so for me, there are certain stores, like big box stores, where I'll walk in and the energy will be overwhelming. Well, if you're walking 12 feet wide, you, your aura, your energy is touching everybody. And no wonder you feel so drained. Or if you go to a festival or you go to a party, think about how many people are in your field of energy if you are 12 feet wide. So you need to get to know your aura so that before you go into a space that you know is going to be draining or maybe in the middle of it, you can pull that aura close to you. So it's almost like a second skin. And that way you are protecting yourselves. And it's just a matter of visualizing because that aura belongs to you. And if you want to tell it to come in closer, it will come in closer. But that's something that is really important for impasse is to really get to know how big their aura is. Are they just letting it go wide all the time? Have they never, ever even tried to pull themselves in? And I'm not saying build a wall either. Some people build walls of protection, but I'm just saying 
in certain spaces where people are going to be very close to you that you don't know or that you know up front are going to be psychic vampires or whatever you want to call it, energy vampires. And some people don't do it on purpose either. So I'm not even calling people a negative term that they're doing it on purpose. It's just some people are draining. Some people take your energy. They take your joy because they are soaking it up as well. And then, and so you are, your cup gets empty. I like to say we have an inner cup. We have to keep our cup full. So an empath's cup gets empty really quickly if they're not taking care of that sort of thing. Grounding is good. I like to go barefoot outside. Um, Boundaries are good. How well do you say no? Like that is the number one boundary. And an empath needs to say no. Everyone needs to say no. But an empath is just, they have to set strong boundaries. And then the, the last one that I really love, it's called observe don't absorb. So you really have to practice being almost like detached to what's going on. And this is a prevention, just like pulling in your aura is a prevention. Being detached is a prevention. So you you step back. You don't try to get involved in all the chaos and drama because a lot of times in past, we feel so deeply, we want to fix all the problems. We want to fix our friends' problems. We want to fix our kids' problems. We want to be right in there comforting and crying with them and everything else. And sometimes we have to step back and detach from that drama and let it happen around us. Let people learn their own lessons without us trying to be in there, trying to fix everything constantly. Because when we're in there fixing it, or trying to fix it, We are up close and personal to all that emotion and we're just absorbing it. So I find a lot of people, especially let's say a narcissist or so forth, when they're in a bad space, they want you to match their emotions. So they will like work on you and work on you until you match whatever like horrible negative space that they're in. And then Mm. when you finally match it, they feel like relief. So I avoid those people like the plague. Do you find people like you to match their emotions? I think that that is such a true statement. And you have to you have to really set strong boundaries with that sort of people. It's really interesting that empaths are drawn to narcissists. And that has been, you know, seen through me with my own clients and friends and in research I've done that just I don't know if it's because of their strong energy, but narcissists and empaths tend to come together as friends. Even empaths will be born into families with a narcissist parent or partners and partners it shows up all the time. And an unprotected empath is just like a feeding frenzy for a narcissist because they will get them to match it and you will match it. You know, they'll beat you down until even if you are protected and then all you know, all chaos breaks loose because you're feeling things that you really shouldn't. And then maybe they start the gaslighting and everything else going on. And you can feel like about that small. It's really detrimental to empaths and everyone, but especially empaths. Yes. My husband's brother is a narcissist and my husband and I are both empaths. I would say for mm-hmm. sure. Everybody comes to us for advice. We're really good at listening and understanding people. And we're kind of, it's just like hilarious because we don't need to speak to each other. We feel what each other feels always. 
And yeah, so with his brother, I had to immediately cut him out because I was, I mean, it, it is interesting to be around a narcissist. They're very interesting to watch. And especially since I have a background in psychology, I'm like, oh, what's he going <laughs> to do now? It's kind of fun in a way, but then it becomes toxic very quickly. And I have to be like, no, we have to cut it off. Right. And for me, it's easier to cut it off. But for my husband, it was some trouble. Yeah. So I had to be the one to like say, no, we, we cannot interact with him anymore because it, it's just so draining yeah. and it, it's not really worth it to have that type of person in your life, especially as an empath. Yeah. And it's so hard to cut people out of your life when they're family. And a lot of times your family are the ones who are really creating negative issues in, in life and getting between and, and just always wanting to dump all their emotions onto you. So it, it, you know, I do think it's valid that it's hard to cut out family members but it's so important. And and even even if it's to the point of your mother, you know, your mother is very difficult to cut out of your life, but maybe your mother creates problems for you. So don't answer the phone when she calls. The phone is a tool for you. I tell people this all the time. People think that they're tied to the telephone, tied to messages, texts. You do not have to answer the phone if you don't want to. If you see your mother calling and you are just not able to do that, just don't answer. And that's a boundary. And it sounds like a simple boundary, but it is so difficult. People say, oh, but it's my mother. And just say no to answering the phone when you're not able to handle that energy. So other than saying no, what are some other ways that we can avoid getting drained? Protection is really key. So you have to figure out a way to protect yourself. There's a lot of different ways to do that. So there's two things, protection and also cleaning up the the emotional debris that you've collected. So those are the two key things. So as far as protection goes, I can't say enough about visualization. I mean, I do hypnosis for a living. So of course, visualizations are near and dear to my heart. But they're powerful as well. Guided meditations and meditate, meditative practice, mindfulness, that would not be as powerful as it is if visualization wasn't powerful. And I know there's a lot of people who aren't as um, able to visualize things as well as others. I've even had people who have come to me who could not visualize anything at all. But you can still experience a visualization, even if you don't see it in your mind's eye. So one of the things you could do with the observe, don't absorb is you could visualize a glass wall around you. So not only can you pull in your aura, but you can then put up a glass wall that allows you to see through, to see what's going on, but it gives you that boundary. So don't don't discredit the power of just a visualization. Also, a a shield. You could just do, people do a white light orb around them or a shield that you can move around. So whatever kind of visualization appeals to you, there's something you can do. Now, we do want to make sure that if we're around people that we do want to get in, that we leave maybe, maybe our crown chakra we leave open. We leave open the top. And so the people that we want to get in, their energy can get in and we can get out. In some situations, I will close myself off completely because there's nothing that I need to be involved in. So it just it just depends on, on what situation you're in. Another thing that you could do is, is a bubble. People like doing a bubble. And remember that your aura doesn't just go out on either side of you too. It's, a, it's like an orb as well. So you're talking six feet under the ground, six feet above you. You know, you are massive 
whenever you have your aura out fully. Your energy is massive. So remember to pull all that in as well. Also, as far as getting rid of the stuff that you've picked up, and remember it's like that sponge. So you're soaking up all this energetic debris. You have to have a way of squeezing the sponge, you know, of cleaning yourself up. And visualization is great for that too. When you take a shower, an empath, when they take a shower, every time they could just briefly visualize all that debris washing off of them with the shower or with the bath. Or some people like a vacuum cleaner and they'll visualize a vacuum cleaner cleaning up their energy, cleaning up all that debris. Another thing that's really good for empaths is to have a way to get rid of that energy through creative pursuit. So anything that you use your hands for, like clay, um, painting, gardening, flower arranging, music, these type of things is going to help you release the energy that you have kind of stored up as well. Um, And so that is, you know, that's a creative form of getting rid of that debris. And those are just a few ideas. (laughs) I know that when I'm in really heavy traffic and I'm in Miami, so the traffic here is insane. It's like bumper cars. (laughs) So people are constantly going through traffic and weaving around and I can feel everything. I'm like, this person is going through a breakup. This person is late. This person is this. And I get like, I can feel everything and everybody thinks I'm crazy, of course. But I'm like, this person's erratic. He's going to hit you. Be careful. And and it happens. Mm. And they're like, you made it happen with your bad energy. I'm like, no, because <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel like when people are unstable around me, which is yeah. really annoying when you're driving in a city that's very unstable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that – I mean, I, I have done that too. I walk into a room even and I will know what's going on. I mean, even I'm almost 50, but when I was even a, a teenager – my boss at the time would put me in a situation where I could watch people come in for a summer camp. And at the end, I would say, all right, you're going to have a problem with this person. These people are going to be sneaking out. These people are going to be doing this. It's like I could just size them up. And it's the same sort of thing. You're just kind of feeling that. And of course, people are going to think we're crazy. But we know how we feel. We know what's going on. And then we have the validation of when it actually happens. A good thing that you could do while you're driving. Now, knowing how to protect yourself while you're driving is is good. So with our spiritual gifts, it's important to be able to take that information and use it in our life. Take that intuition, whether it's coming from emotions or whatever else, and use it in our life. But in some in some cases, like in Miami traffic, you might want to just shut that out. And so one thing that you could do is you could visualize a mirror around you. And so not only are you being protected, but you're sending the energy back to who it belongs to. So you're not harming anybody. You're just saying, all right, I see you. You're having marriage problems right on back, right on back. And so you're just bouncing that energy back and observing again instead of taking it on. And the more you practice that, the better you'll be able to say, all right, this information is important. This information will keep me from having a wreck or keep me from getting involved in a bad relationship. But this information I just don't need has nothing to do with me. We'll send it back. And so you'll be able to determine what is coming to you that you actually need to process and what has nothing to do with your life and can go on back to the person. Awesome. So I'm going to try that and see what happens. Yeah, see what happens. So let's talk about a really fun subject, death. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've all been touched by death. And one of the lingering results being touched by death, I find, is that you start thinking and become worried about your own impending death. Mm. So why are people so afraid of death and dying in our culture? And why can't it be a happy thing by making death like a sad thing? Doesn't that automatically make us feel that it's a bad thing? Because nobody fears graduating high school. You might cry a little bit because your life has changed and you're outgrowing some people and it is an ending to a chapter. Mm -hmm. But why haven't we made it kind of like that for death? The quick answer for that is for, from what I see is culture has done that to us because it wasn't always that way. When you look back at other other cultures in the past, even other spiritual paths, and even our country back before the 1900s, there was a different take on it. And I think culture really has made us fear death. And that's a problem. We don't fear so much graduation. We don't fear these other rites of passage or cycle of life type of things, but we are terrified of death. And culture has made us terrified. I mean, if you look at the language of death itself, it shows us that it is it is a tragedy. It's, it is a defeat um, so we, they didn't make it. They gave up the ghost. They couldn't fight it. They lost the battle. Like all the euphemisms and language that we use around it, even, even when we're talking to someone trying to comfort them, the language is still there, that this was, this was a defeat. They have failed somehow to live forever. And we all know we cannot live forever. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we know we can't live forever, but we pretend it doesn't exist because it has been created to be such a terrifying thing. I mean, we're too afraid to even be around a dead body. I mean, we don't even take care of our own dead in our homes anymore. That was common practice before, I think it, it started around the late 1800s when the Civil War area, um, and especially into the 1900s, although in rural areas, you still found that happening even into the 1950s and so. But we don't even do that. You ship them off to the funeral home, the funeral home business. You can kind of look back through history and see when that boomed. When the funeral business boomed, that's when we took a step back. And so if we can't be around them, if, if we're not going to be taking care of our dead, it becomes a mystery. And the unknown is also something to be afraid of. So we don't know what happens. And we're told that it's such a terrible thing. And so I think that just all the process through decades has separated us from death and that is kind of the kernel of, of what I think of why we're just so afraid of it. I think of the body kind of like um, going into a car to drive and then you get out of the car and then you go somewhere else. Yeah. I yeah. don't think of it like this big important thing, like if the body's demise is my demise. Right. And I find that when people die, I don't care to see the body anymore because I'm like, they're not there anymore. I just don't have any connection to it. Like the second it happens, like, for example, when pets have died, I've mm. seen the life go out of them. And then I just like, this is not them. This is mm. just, this is nothing. Yeah. And just there's the no like, 
yeah, it's a shell and I don't want to go to a funeral or whatever to see a shell because I have the memory of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the real thing to me. But I understand some people like for closure, the cleaning mm-hmm. of the body is very important and stuff like that. Yeah, it just was the way of way of the world. I mean, you just took care of it because they, that's what you did. And you dressed them and it was like the last way of showing love. And and I think people, for the most part, understand that the soul's not in there, the energy's not in there anymore. Um, but they loved that body. They loved that person in that body. And I've always told people, I've even, my parents were kind of iffy about going to a funeral um, recently. And I and I told them, you know, the funeral's not for the, the body up there. It's for the other people. So it doesn't matter even if the body's there or not. The body doesn't have to be there. The body is, in a sense, meaningless anymore. It's just the shell. But you go to things like that to support the other people because of the grief and everything. And it kind of just, it helped them to see because they said, well, I don't really even know this person, but you know the person that they were close to. So you go to support them. But I think that the even the dead body, I mean, think about all the zombie things that are on TV now. It's like the dead bodies terrify us. And it just didn't used to be that way. And I think it's because we're, we have no connection to death. It's it's a cycle of life. The, the bodies would sometimes be wrapped, sometimes they wouldn't, or put in a pine box, carried out by the family. They'd dig a hole and they would bury them sometimes in their backyards. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> what would happen if you were to tell someone, uh, I have children in their 20s, if, if, if I were to tell them, all right, this is how I want you to, to dress me when I die, and I want you to go dig a hole in the backyard and put can you imagine? They would freak out. You, know? you just don't do that. Um, recently, I had a family friend die at the age of 101. Wow. Just a few days ago. And about a week before she passed, she started having conversations with people who had already passed. So she's getting visited by family members before and we're watching because her mind was perfect up until like a week before she died. Mm-hmm. And she's talking to all these people and she's telling them audibly, clearly, I'm, I'm waiting for someone before I go to my party. I know you're having a party for me, but I'm waiting for someone. And then like her nephew came from out of town and a few days after she passed. But it was very clear what was going on. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you believe in that stuff or not. When you're watching it, you're like, okay, there's something else out there. Right. Definitely, it's not the end. I mean, she is literally having big, in-depth conversations in front of us. Wow. That is extremely common. In fact, when I was a hospice volunteer, when I became an ordained minister, part of doing that through my schooling was I had to do community service. So I chose to go into hospice. And we were trained, of course, to be a, a, a hospice volunteer and that is one of the things that they told us. And this is, wasn't even a spiritual type of, of business. It was, we deal with people who are dying. And that is so common that as they approach the, the point of death, they will start talking to people from, from their life. They will start talking to loved ones. They will kind of go in and out of reality almost and go into this state. That's one of the signs that they teach people to know what, that they're getting close so yeah, that's very common. And yeah, people can say it doesn't really happen. But yeah, when you're there and you're seeing it, it changes It changes your mind a little bit. Are there some other common themes that you've found in example near-death experiences or when people are about to die? 
One of the things that is very common in near-death experiences all around the world is that that light, kind of that light at the end of the tunnel. I thought that was very interesting. When I was doing research, I teach a class called Dying Well, and that was part of the thing. I also read the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the Bardo Fidal um, as part of this course. And it was just really interesting that it doesn't matter what religion or spiritual path or where they lived in the world. So many of them experienced this light as if beckoning them and also being given a choice. So a lot of times they're being given a choice. Do you want to come on? They may see someone familiar or someone unfamiliar, like an an angel or a guide or something like that, but they're given the choice. And a lot of times they will say, I made the choice to come back. And so it makes you think a little bit. So if everyone is given a choice, you know, some people choose to go ahead and go on. It's their time. There's something that makes you go ahead and choose. So I think that's just really super interesting to think about as you have that light, whatever that light is. I I happen to think that there's a space between lives. I believe in um, our, our energy, our souls moving on to another body at some point. So I see that as like the space between lives that they go to. But someone else could say, heaven or whatever it is. It's that space of of just calm and compassion and pure love. So I think that that's really interesting that you can see that all around the world from people everywhere. What's the difference between pain and suffering and what does that have to do with death? One of the main things that people are afraid of with their own death. So, you know, we're kind of coming away from talking about other people's death, coming back to the idea that, yes, we will die. And, and one of the things that I tell people is that our own death can be our greatest power in our life. And one of the things people are so afraid of is, is pain. They're afraid of suffering while they're dying. They don't want to suffer. And when someone dies, sometimes you know, if there's a car wreck, one of the first questions is, did they suffer? It's like, that's just, that's utmost in our mind. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to have pain. Now, pain is actual physical discomfort. The way I see suffering is that that's the story around your pain. That's the emotions. So that's the sorrow or the grief or the anger or the emotional or the mental aspects. So you can be in pain without suffering, or you can be in pain and choose to suffer. So I have fibromyalgia. I'm in pain pretty much every day of my life to some point. Sometimes it's very low, but I'm always in pain. At one point in my life, I was always in pain and always suffering. Oh, why did this happen to me? My life sucks. I'm just going to stay in this bed. I don't want to even get up and just, you know, moping around and then being angry. Why did this have to happen to me? I've got so many things I need to do. I'm talking years of this depression, anger, like a cycle. And I decided at some point to stop suffering. I was still in pain. Pain can still be there. And so that's something that we can think about as we consider death, because it is such such a fear for people. You can choose not to suffer, even when you're dying. You can decide what you're going to do with the pain. So instead of seeing pain as the enemy, regardless if it has to do with death or not, because this really could do with anybody who's in pain, emotional, physical, whatever kind of pain it is. Make pain your friend. 
and go ahead and do that now so that you don't have that fear in the future. Make it your friend, not your enemy. And say, all right, pain, you're my pal. You're my buddy. What are you trying to teach me today? And so for me, it might be, all right, pain, I I see you. I'm holding space for you, pain. What are you trying to tell me? Oh, you're telling me that I should not go walk around today. I should take it easy today. Or you're telling me, "Mm, you shouldn't have had that thing with gluten. You know, gluten bothers you. So if you look at it that way, and it's not like just seeing it as the total enemy and and writing all those stories that make you miserable, it absolutely can change your whole perspective on pain, which means that as you get to a point, whatever time it happens in your life, that you are in pain because death often does come with some sort of pain, you can choose to not suffer. And one statement that I love is when I really start feeling that suffering come up, you know, I'm trying to get out of bed. I will, I will actually tell myself, I am in pain, but I'm not suffering. I am in pain, but I'm not suffering. It's like an affirmation. And it, and it helps. It changes things. And just making friends with that pain is going to help you. And with pain and suffering being integral to people's ideas of death, I think that that's just something that would help you as you approach that and help you throughout your life as well. I also heard that some people have taken mushrooms and that has helped them get rid of their fear of death completely. Mm. Have you heard of that? And what do you think about that? I've actually never heard that. And I've heard of people taking ayahuasca and mushrooms and different things like that to have spiritual experiences and to release a lot of things. So I I think that you have to be really careful with stuff like that. There's a lot of, um, you know, that you just have to make sure that you are being careful and you're making good choices. But I think that any sort of spiritual experience, whether it is coming from your own meditation or coming from something that you're doing um, with ayahuasca or whatever it is, mushrooms, a spiritual experience is going to change you in some way. And so, yes, it probably could. Would I ever do it? No, I wouldn't. Um, Because I just don't, you know, you got to be careful with stuff like that. But I can see where it would work. Yeah, I would never do them too much of a chicken. Yeah. (laughs) But I was always thinking like, you know, if I'm really old, and I know I'm gonna die, and I'm scared, I think I would do it then. So are they taking mushrooms that will help them die? Is that what you're saying? Not to kill them, but to help them, I guess, have an experience where they come to terms with their death and then okay. they're okay and ready to die. Okay. Okay. Um, I I feel like as much as possible, we should do, we should take care of that before we get to the, that point. I, I think that's what my class is about, really, is don't get to the point where you're terrified and you have to you resort to doing something to make yourself ready to die. Like, just go ahead and do it now. Because people, you know, when they get a a diagnosis or someone close to them dies, that's when they start thinking about things. That's when they start making changes. And that's when they go with the whole seize the day type thing. And so my whole thing of taking your death, because we know it's going to happen, like we pretend so much it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. So go ahead and harness that energy now. Don't wait till you know, something happens in order to seize the day. Live every single day. Wake up in the morning and say, I, I'm going to die. 
I'm, I'm going to die. It could be today. It could be 50 years from now, but I am going to die. So what would I do today? What would I do differently today if I knew I was going to die tonight? Because that's what happens when we get a diagnosis. That's what happens when someone we love dies. We suddenly shift our thinking into, man, we don't have that much time. And it almost like it, this rush of clearing away all that toxic thinking that we're never going to die. So let's go ahead and do it now. Let's go ahead and think about our death. Like That sounds so morbid, but that's one of the things that is a good thing is to practice dying. I mean, there's a reason that the monks used to whisper memento mori to each other. That means remember death. And so remember every single day that your body will die. Think about it. Talk about it to your friends. Talk about it to your family. Be honest with your own thoughts about it. Be authentic with it. And there's even meditations that you can do where you meditate on what it would be like to die, what it would be like to see your body go back into the earth. And that sounds super morbid to people, but the more you make yourself, just like I said with the pain, but the more you make yourself friends with the fact that this shell will die, the less fear you have and the more able you'll be able to live every single day just realizing that, okay, I'm going to die. It could happen soon. What will I do different today? Will I create drama or will I create love? I just feel like it changes your whole perspective on how you treat other people, what you choose to do. If you are always just realizing we're impermanent. It's so true. And I actually do sometimes have like little times where I've meditated, like, what is it going to be like to die? And then I'm there like talking to the universe and I'm like asking like, why did you give me migraines? What was up with that? <laughs> and why wasn't I never rich? <laughs> like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I just try to like tell little jokes to myself and to the universe. I'm like, well, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like you are very tuned in to your spiritual gifts because you know, you already talked about being an empath and people coming to you and just a lot of the things you've talked about how you're actually knowing things about people, which is beyond empathy. So you're saying, you know, if people are having issues in life, you know, all these things from the cars that gets into different spiritual gifts than just being an empath. So I think mm-hmm. that you, you are considering the world kind of outside of your body already. And I think that's wonderful. I I wish more people would be like that. So let's get into spiritual gifts and talents. Okay. What makes something a spiritual gift? So I think the difference between a spiritual gift and a talent is that a talent could become a spiritual gift if you're actually using it for your community. If you're if you're using it for the people around you in some way. And when I say community, I don't mean that you necessarily have to go, you know, put out a shingle and be <laughs> whatever it is for the world. But in some way, you're using your gifts to help your family, your friends, you know, maybe being on a podcast and spreading the word of certain things. But somehow you are using your spiritual gifts for the community. So you can be talented at art. And you can be painting all these beautiful things that hang in your home, but it's a it's a different thing when you go to a festival and you hang your art up and you're interacting with people and selling them and they're saying, oh, this, this art just makes me feel so good, or it's bringing back a memory of a place I went to. 
So it's kind of that, that different, um, that difference there. So that's to me what the difference is. You're using a spiritual gift for your community, whatever your community looks like. What are some ways that we can discover if we have any spiritual gifts? I think everybody has spiritual gifts. Everybody. There are two spiritual gifts that I think every single person on this earth is born with. Intuition and creativity. Now, there's probably more, but those are the big ones that I see in everybody. Does that mean that everybody has the same kind of scoop? (laughs) No, we may have bigger scoops than others. And also, maybe we're all given the same size when we're born and some of us choose not to use it. So we don't practice it. We don't use our intuition. We don't we don't use our creativity. We don't think we're good enough. But I think everybody is given that. But as far as a lot of the other gifts, it's good to, again, look at yourself. Look at what brings you joy, what brings you peace. Another thing you can do to figure out what your spiritual gifts are is to look at who you're drawn to in TV shows, in movies, in books. See how you connect with those people and kind of break it down that way. What what emotions or ideas or personalities or things that people are doing really resonate with you? Um, are there certain symbols that you see that really bring emotion to you? Are there images or songs or poems or anything that just you're really connected to. So again, this is getting to know yourself. You really have to figure out what you like, what brings you joy, what steals your joy. You know, what is the worst type of place for you to be? Um, And that just kind of guides you on this meandering journey to figure out what it is your spiritual gifts are. Um, And, you know, you can have a talent and talents are perfectly fine. And maybe you want to use your gifts as just talents. Maybe you just want to use them for yourself. Totally fine with that. But if you want to go forward with the spiritual gifts, then figure out ways that you are doing things with your community. And that's another way. Figure out, you know, you can journal about it and say, all right, um, I like doing this. I love having people over at my house. I'm always, always the host of all these events. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. You're using that spiritual gift. I personally think that being a hairdresser is a spiritual gift. I mean, think about everything you have to, you have to have skill. You have to be able to talk to people. You are holding space for people. But if you're just, you know, never use it, then that would not be a spiritual gift. But if you are using it for your family or setting up shop and people are just coming in and feeling better about themselves when they leave, that is absolutely a spiritual gift. There's so many spiritual gifts. There's over 40 that I have um, when I teach my classes about spiritual gifts. There's so many of them. So it's not just, you know, the ones that most people talk about. There's a lot more. Can you go over some of the clairs for us, like clairvoyant and so forth? And what are they in? Yeah, so those are some of the more popular spiritual gifts. So clairaudience is clear hearing, clear audio, so clear hearing. So if you have clear audience, you are, and, and this is all ways of being receptive to intuition. Um, so intuition, that's why I think everyone is given it. So your intuition comes to you from be, hearing words. You're not hearing with your actual ears, you're hearing with spiritual ears. But if you are someone that actually will hear some, you know, hear something say, 
don't turn down, down that road or this is not something you need to eat. That is clear audience. You're actually hearing things. Clear cognizance is clear knowing. You just know something. You don't have any evidence. You just know it deep down. And a lot of people have that as well, the clear cognizance. Clear empathy, clear emotion. That is the kind of official name of being an empath. It's called clear empathy. So it is one of the clairs. And so we talked a little bit about empathy. Um, and there's a difference between empathetic and being an empath. You know, anybody can be empathetic. Anybody can kind of step into someone's shoes and try to see what is going on through their eyes. That's being empathetic. But being an empath is all those things that we talked about earlier in the show. And then you have Claire Gustin's. And that is clear tasting. So just like with the hearing, you're tasting things that you are not actually having on your tongue. You're actually tasting things without your mouth. So for instance, you might walk into um, an old house and you will taste lemon or you'll taste chocolate chip cookies. You can taste it in your mouth, but no one has given you that to eat. There are no cookies even cooking for you to even have that smell receptor make you taste it. But you may be smelling something uh, from someone that used to live there or from energy that was left there. So that's an interesting one. Um, then you have clear alliance, which is clear scent. A lot of times the tasting and the scent will come together. So maybe you're tasting the chocolate chip cookie and you smell the chocolate chip cookie and the person may say, oh, my grandmother, um, my grandmother's dead, but she used to make me chocolate chip cookies all the time. And this is her home. And, you know, it's stuff like that. You're getting that information. Um, you might smell something and that smell will tell you that this is not a person that you need to get close to. This is a dangerous person. So it come, that's how that intuition is receptive um, for you. Clairsentience is clear sensing. So some people say, well, this must be the same as clear empathy, but it's different because you, it's not always an emotion. You may sense something that is not an emotion. You may sense that violence happened here, or you may sense something that is not actually an emotion, and you don't have to touch it to feel it. Because the clairtangency is through touching. Sometimes it's called psychometry, but that is where you actually can. You may see, you know, tarot readers will say, all right, give me your ring or give me something that belongs to you. And they'll touch it and they'll be able to actually see things or know things about you. So the clairsentience is clear sensing. You just sense things and not necessarily emotions. And then you've got, of course, clairvoyance, which is a very common one that people know about. And that is clear vision. So you actually see things in your mind's eye. That's one of my strongest um, spiritual gifts. I can close my eyes. I don't even have to close my eyes. But if I close my eyes immediately, I will see things like it is a movie screen. And I use that. In my practice, I use that with people as well. I can use it with cards. But that's what happens is, is if you are seeing visions, you see things very clearly. That is the clairvoyance. That makes sense? 
Yes. So I'm trying to think of the ones that I might have. Mm. <laughs> okay. So I know that if I smell something, I can tell immediately if someone should eat it or not. Mm. And I'm like, don't eat this. You're going to throw up. And they're like, oh, you say that for everything. And I'm like, okay, go ahead. And they do and they get so mad. Or it happens in the worst times. Like I'll go to a fancy restaurant. I'll pay a lot of money for something and I'll bring it up to me. And I'm like, I can't eat this. Mm. And they're like, what do you mean? That's like 50 bucks. You eat that. I'm like, no, I can't eat this. And then, you know, my husband will eat it and then he'll get sick. Oh, no. I told you. And then now to the point where before he eats something, he's like, smell this. <laughs> that sounds like Claire O'Malliance because if anybody, if nobody else can smell what you're smelling, so it's not an actual scent of something, then you're smelling with your spiritual nose in a sense. So yeah. I can also smell when someone is going through like a bipolar manic episode. Mm, interesting. And they have a very distinct scent, but I notice a lot of other friends can smell it too, but they just think the person has like really bad body odor. And I'm like, no, that's manic. (laughs) That's the scent of manic. And I think a lot of people can smell it, but we're just not attuned to recognize what's going on. Like I do think body odors can kind of give clues to how a person is mentally. Yeah, absolutely. I also think you have clear, clear cognizance. And, and that's which one? That's just the knowing. No evidence. You just know things. So I think that may work in with your smell as well. You just – you smell something and you just know what that means. Yes. I do know that when I'm driving or when I'm in a passenger in the car, I'm just like – I don't know where I'll be like immediately slow down right now. And then a cop will just – that was hiding will just go by. Yep. And they're like, how did you know that? I'm like, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can tell – even just from the things we were talking about with the, with the empathy that Claire cognizance is, is probably one of your top gifts. Um, do you have to be able to do it while you're awake? Because I find that sometimes I'll see things or know things based off of dreams. That is very common. And it's just your recept, your receptivity. So for me being clairvoyant, I will see symbols. I will see things in, in my dreams And so that then gives me information when I wake up. So when you dream, do you do a dream journal at all? Do you keep up with your dreams? I used to write them down, but okay. So it would be interesting if you did that for a little while to see are you actually seeing things that give you the information? Are you smelling things? Are you just knowing things from the dream to kind of figure out? And it may be a combination of various things. But it'd be really interesting. But dreams are wonderful conduits for spiritual information. I had one dream when I was younger that my my boyfriend at the time was cheating on me and I got the girl's name and all that stuff. I woke up screaming. My mom came in. What happened? And I'm like, he's cheating on me with a girl named whatever. She called my boyfriend and said, you're cheating on my daughter with a girl named whatever. And he's like, no, that's just my friend. And she happens to be here right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. Dreams are really interesting things and dreams can scare people. We dream all the time, even if we don't remember it. You know, there's actually a way of incubating dreams. And that's where as you're going to sleep, you decide what you want to dream about. And you could even have some sort of symbol or a picture, a symbol or a picture 
that you're focusing on as you're going to sleep. So for instance, if you are, I don't know, trying to figure out what job you want to take, maybe you have two jobs offers. And so you could write those down and you could look at that and say, okay, here's this offer. Here's this offer. I want my intuition or higher self or whatever it is you believe to give me information in my dream tonight. Tuck it under your pillow or sit it nearby, immediately go to sleep, and you can get really good at incubating. It's called incubating your dreams and actually using your dreams to really get information instead of just it just coming whenever it wants to. Yes, I have tried this a few times. Sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't work, but yeah. I do try to do that. <laughs> you can do it for fun too. You can say, I want to go uh, spend some time in the mountains and go to a waterfall and look at a picture of a waterfall so you can use it for fun as well and just for relaxation. And can we talk about the gifts of communication? Can you give us a few examples of those? Yeah, sure. So channeling is one of those gifts. It's very popular. And that's where you are actually bringing information from the spiritual realm and you're being the channel for that. Sometimes it might just be a new idea. You know, you if you look back to inventors and things like that, I think a lot of times they were channeling. They may not know it, but they just this idea pops into their dreams or pops into their mind and they go and they make it and they have made this thing or something in the medical field that changes everyone's life. That is a type of channeling. But you also have people who are actually channeling through voice and you can see their face change, their voice change, their speech will change as they're channeling this higher power or whatever it is. Another type of communication gift would be crossing over departed spirits. And that's one that I have been involved in myself. And that's where you are just leading these spirits that are somehow trapped on earth to the light. Intercession is another gift of communication. And that is, it's not just praying for people every once in a while, but if you have the gift of intercession, then spending time talking to the universe, source, divine with people and their problems, that is so important to you. And if someone comes into their mind, they're immediately sending them good energy, sending them positive vibes, or they're praying, whatever it is that people's spirituality has. That's the gift of intercession. So it's a lot more than just, I'm going to pray for you. This gift is just so so deeply involved in their life that they're always just trying to intercede on people's behalf. And that's one that people don't really talk about a whole lot. And uh, of course, mediumship, that's one of them. There's a lot more, but mediumship is communicating with spirits. And sometimes they can see them, sometimes not, but they're actually communicating with spirits on the physical plane. You've probably seen shows and things like that with mediums. It's a very popular gift. Um, People like to you know, deal with, with mediums and and that sort of thing. So let's go back to like intuition. You say everybody has intuition. How -hmm. can we make it stronger? The best way to do, to make anything stronger is to practice. And so you have to see, if you look at intuition as a muscle, you have to practice with it. You have to stretch it. You have to do things with it. And it might be simple things at first. I like to tell people, 
that as you're driving, listen to your intuition for things that don't really matter just to get practice with it. That's great for saying no as well, saying no to things that don't matter just to practice saying that word. But with intuition, if you just feel an urge to take another path home, take it. Sometimes I will just get a little nudge that says, all right, now go into that antique store. There's something in there for you. And it would be very easy for me to drive home, to just go on by and say, I ain't got time to go in there. But when I have followed my intuition, and and this seems like something that is just so inconsequential, but I've walked into this antique store and right there has been something that I've been wanting or needing in my life. And so these are ways to just listen, listen to all those little nudges, figure out where intuition speaks to you in your body. Do you know where intuition speaks to you? Some people feel it like a gut feeling. Some people feel fluttering in their heart, different things. Where do you feel your intuition? And can you explain what claiming your gift is? Yeah, when you claim your spiritual gifts, you are actually saying out loud, I have this gift. I claim the gift because words are powerful. Names are powerful as well. And so by speaking out loud, we're actually confronting shame. Shame is something that a lot of people carry with their spiritual gifts. Just think about us being empaths and how many times in our lives, and I'm going to guess in your life, so I'm including you in on this, how many times have we been tried to be shamed because of our emotional state, because of our ability to feel things from other people. Shame is something that most people carry with their spiritual gifts. So when we, and it doesn't have to even be around people, but when we say, I am clairvoyant, I am an empath, there is power in those words. And it allows you to kind of just stand a little stronger and realize that the shame that we've been carrying we don't need to carry that shame anymore. We can be gifted people. We can we can feel emotions. We can, you know, think about the gifts of communication we just talked about. There's a lot of shame that comes from dealing with spirits, the spiritual world. I mean, people are put into mental hospitals because they may have the gift of, I mean, I'm not saying mental health, mental issues don't exist. But some people, because I I was put in the mental hospital because of my spiritual gifts in my, I was put in twice. I was also told that it was demons. So, I mean, this shame is real. People carry this shame. And so you, you are being powerful. You're telling your subconscious and your conscious mind, this is a gift and I'm going to use it as a gift. So I would highly recommend anybody who's been listening to this. And we just went over a few things, but if any of this speaks to them, claim it, say it out loud, say, yes, I have clairsentience. I am an empath and just allow that shame that people and culture has, has put on us from for just no reason, maybe fear, maybe other things. Just allow your speaking out loud to let the shame kind of drop away. That's kind of why I I see it as important to say it. Not only does words have power, but you also want to, you know, be bold about it. Even if it's just with you looking at yourself in the mirror or something. So before we go, I know that you're a certified hypnotherapist. And I had to ask you a little bit about that today too. Okay. 
I recently went to a hypnotherapist and I spent like three, four hours there and I swear nothing happened and I felt so bad because I just pretended like I did oh, no. something because I didn't want to make them feel bad. But I really want to be hypnotized just to experience it. Um, could it be that there's just some people that can't be hypnotized? And, is, and if that's not true, are, is there a way to make it easier to be hypnotized? I personally think everybody can be hypnotized, but some people are more susceptible than others. So just you saying that you spent three or four hours, I cannot imagine spending that much time with a client and them not getting into some sort of hypnotic state. A lot of times a client will come in and they will have an idea of what hypnosis feels like and looks like. And so they may say, oh, nothing happened, nothing happened. When actually if if, if a person is saying, well, were you super relaxed? Where did changes take place? Then you realize that maybe you just didn't go very deep, but you were hypnotized. If you've ever driven in a car um, and you just arrived somewhere and you weren't quite sure how you ended up there, you kind of forgot all the ways you were going, that's very common, you were hypnotized. So there's a lot of ways that we actually enter into hypnosis that we don't even know it. So was, and I don't want to get into anything personal with you, but the purpose that you went, did you see any results that came afterwards from that? No, because the purpose that I went was I wanted to do like like a past life regression or something like that. Like I wanted I wanted that experience mm. and I didn't get any of that. And it was just kind of like maybe I need more time or it's the wrong person or something. It is really important to feel super comfortable with whoever's doing your hypnosis The more you hear their voice, the more you um, are involved with them in some way of, of, you know, listening to things that they have online. Or in my case, I have had clients come to me for several years now. And there were some that were very difficult at the beginning. But now when they come to me, as soon as I start within the first few lines, they're in a hypnotic state. That's because they've gotten used to my voice. So there's a lot of factors going in there. It also has to do with your learning style. Because I have to change my language for each person. If I have a person who is a very tactile learner, I have to use that kind of language. Because if I say, you're going to see this and you see that and you visualize that, but they are actually feeling the sand under your feet and you feel this and the heat on your face, you, you have to change your language. And that's why I ask my clients, what is your learning style? Um, personality, that sort of thing. How how much have you done any visualization in your life? Because not everybody is going to see a movie in their, their minds like I do. And so your hypnosis practitioner needs to be very aware of your personal style, the way you comprehend the world so that they can use their language to do that. I do a lot of past life regressions and I've been doing them for several years now. Mine aren't that long. Mine are about an hour and a half because we just explore one past life. But it would break my heart if I knew somebody was just faking it because <laughs> it would break my heart because we if they can't get to the place where they're going, then it's my job as the hypnosis practitioner to help them get through the blocks. I've had a client who went to their childhood. Their subconscious wouldn't let them go to a past life because they needed to deal with something in their life today. And I've had people with blocks where they have, we've had 
jackhammers in our visualization. All right, break this block down. And then they've been able to go through. So in the three years that I've been doing past life regressions, I've only ever had two clients who could not get to anything. And I always do two sessions. If they can't get to something in the one session, I'll give another free session. But when someone comes in and they want a certain experience, those are the times. Those are the two times that has just not been able to happen because it was almost like you could look at them and they were just, you know, trying to squeeze out this experience. They just like, oh, and it didn't happen because they never relaxed. They never just let what needed to happen happen. But I would encourage you to try with somebody else because people have different styles. They have different voices. Now, I would encourage you to try again with somebody else. Okay, so I will try again with someone else. So um, since we mentioned hypnotherapy, what commonalities have you discovered when you do hypnotherapy, like especially with past life regressions? Oh, that's uh, the whole past life thing is so fascinating. One common thing, people think that they're going to be a queen or, you know, Joan of Arc or something like that. And that hardly ever happens. So if people come in thinking that they're going to be some famous person from history, that just doesn't happen. I think the the highest kind of ranking person that I've ever had that I can recall offhand was the daughter of a, a localized ruler, a king of some sort. Most people are farmers or teachers or, you know, they have a shop wives, husbands, mothers, a lot of farmers. So if that is just something that is very common, don't go into it thinking that you're going to be someone super famous because not everybody, I mean, how many people claim to have been Joan of Arc in a past life? Somebody's lying. It just doesn't happen. Um, And as far as anything else, I think another common thing is, some sort of trauma of some sort. It's it's probably more rare that I go with somebody and it's just the beautiful, beautiful life. Like those aren't the type of past life experiences that my clients go to because that you're not carrying that much into this life from that sort of thing. Now it has happened and there's been portions of people's lives that have been happy, but for the most part, you're bringing back lessons. I'm all about healing. For me, yeah, people come in for curiosity, but let's see what we can do to change life today. Let's not let, let's see what lessons you can learn. Let's see what you can bring into this life. And so we go to chaotic or or sad or sometimes even violent things, emotionally um, hurtful times. Um, and so that, to me, I've seen as very common as is when we explore past life, it's not always going to be happy rainbow sunshine. So how can everybody work with you? So I have a website and it's threeraysoflight.org and that's a number three. And I would love to have people check it out and get in touch with me. I'm on Facebook as well under Three Rays of Light. And what social media platforms are you most active on? I'm most active on Facebook. I do have a podcast that I will post to Twitter, uh, but as far as most of what I do, it's on Facebook. 
you know, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I have trouble with like the TikToks and yeah. Oh, even Instagram is a little hard for me. <laughs> me too. I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> is there anything else you would like to leave our audience with before you go? If anyone is interested in just a a fun podcast, I have a, a witchy theme podcast called Bell Book and Candle, and it's B E L L E, like Southern Bell, because if you can't tell from my language, I am Southern, and uh, I would love to to have more people on that. We have a lot of wonderful wellness guests. It's not just all about witchy, metaphysical, woo woo stuff. Yeah, I would love people to check that out. Bell Book and Candle. Awesome. So I'm going to put all of this in the show notes for everyone to check out. And thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you for listening to the show. Please show your support for the podcast by leaving a five-star review. Learn more about the show and what I have to offer you at katkatibi.com. Consider being a part of the new Patreon, where episodes are ad-free and you'll find extra bonus content. Send a voicemail question or email me. Check the show notes for more information. I had an episode a while back with Dr. Mona Fahum of Feminescence, and we spoke about Feminescence, Maca Harmony, and their Maca products. And if you're a woman who's ever had hormonal imbalances, if you're trying to come off the birth control pill, or even if you're going through menopause, this is a natural way to help ease that transition and to help balance your hormones. There's nothing quite like it, so go to Feminescence.com, enter code CAT15, K-A-T-1-5, for 15% off any of their single pack products. And definitely go check out the episode. Just search for Mona Fahum on my podcast and listen. You won't regret it. This podcast is for informational, merrymaking, and metaphysical purposes only. Statements and views are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kakatibi, disclaim any adverse effects by the use of information you may have heard. Opinions of guests are totally their own. This podcast does not endorse statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications, credibilities, or sanity. Individuals may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to on the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, consult with a licensed medical physician, not just the spirit of your ancestors while on ayahuasca.